Thing one, two, three. Is that better? I'm delighted you're here this morning. I'm even more delighted you can hear me. But I just wanted to say that um, as we come to the table of the Lord, what a great opportunity to be reminded again that not only we have this wonderful relationship with God, but because of that relationship, we have this relationship with one another. And I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for this church and for the opportunity to come and share God's word with you this morning. And with that, I'd like to invite you again to turn to the gospel according to John. The Apostle John states his purpose for writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that, purpose statement, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote to convince his readers, and that includes you and me, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And not only that, but in believing that we might have life in his name. And that's eternal life, both now and forever, for all eternity. John begins this gospel by presenting in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, what he himself has become absolutely convinced of. It's a profound prologue. In these opening 18 verses, John reveals what he has come to understand about Jesus Christ. Actually, what he in his mind, soul and spirit, has become absolutely convinced of. That Jesus was indeed God dressed in human flesh. The remainder of chapter 1 he calls on, on or presents testimonies. First beginning with, with John the Baptist. That one identified in the Old Testament who would be a forerunner to the Messiah. Following John the Baptist's testimony, four of Jesus' earliest disciples come and testify of Jesus' deity. Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Chapter 1 relied on the words of others. John's explanation, his own explanation, and then the testimony of Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, Peter, and John the Baptist. Chapter 2 presents a couple of works of Jesus that again, in the same way. First we have words, and now works. They give evidence that this Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The first work, or deed, here in chapter 2, was the turning of water into wine at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. The second work finds Jesus clearing the temple of money changers and sellers in order to clean up the temple worship in the city of Jerusalem. And these two activities, in the words of verse 11, manifest his glory. In other words, once again, they serve to reveal his true identity, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. The words of eyewitness testimony 
and the works of Jesus himself provide evidence that Jesus was indeed God dressed in human flesh, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Now, last week, we, we limited our study to the, the final three verses of chapter 2. I found the message particularly sobering. Many believed in his name, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Why? Well, first of all, because of the basis of their belief. It was sign-dependent belief. And secondly, because of his knowledge of, of man, of humanity. This morning, we want to continue our study by focusing on a conversation recorded in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Here we will discover the basis or foundation of an adequate belief, not a, a sign-dependent or an experience-based belief. And, and let me just say that, that signs or experiences or encounters with God can be really helpful in terms of awakening us to some of the spiritual realities which we often go unnoticed. But they are never intended, hear this, they are never intended to be the end in and of themselves. They are not the destination. They serve only to point the way. That's what signs do. And specifically in this instance, Jesus' signs are intended to point us to him, the author and perfecter of faith, Hebrews 12.2, the one in whom we can entrust ourselves. But what might that look like? Entrusting ourselves to Christ. What would it look like to entrust ourselves to him in a way that he would feel comfortable entrusting himself to you and to me? That's a great question. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you and are able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Beginning at John chapter 2, verse 23. Excuse me. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, You are the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whosoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truths, we pray. Renew our minds so that your thoughts become our thoughts and our ways become pleasing in your sight. Make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. In the first three verses of John chapter 3, we're introduced to an individual who approaches Jesus to initiate a conversation with him. We learn that, first of all, that this individual is a man, a living, breathing example of the one of those creatures that Jesus had just referred to at the end of John chapter 2. Look at the verses again in John chapter 2 at the, at the end of the chapter. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew 
for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus knew all about, inside and out, the good, the bad, and the ugly of this individual when he came as a representative of humanity. Further, we learn that this individual who engaged Jesus was a man of the Pharisees. What do you know about Pharisees? Chances are, it's not positive, right? Because as a group, they were all too often on the receiving end of Jesus' harshest criticism throughout the gospel accounts. Pharisees were a middle-class religious sect of Judaism. You've also heard of the Sadducees. They were another sect within Judaism, but they were on the higher end. So they were the rich, elite aristocrats. And together they formed the establishment, or maybe what in U.S. politics has become known as the swamp. The Pharisees maintained a high view of the Mosaic Law. Unfortunately, they insisted on a strict strict adherence to the traditions of the elders. What initially began as applications and implications of the Mosaic Law quickly became just as authoritative as the law itself. One commentator offers the following example of what that might look like in real life in first century Palestine. Listen to this. For instance, it was determined that on the Sabbath you could not tie a knot in a rope, according to the traditions of the elders. No knots. But a woman could tie a knot in her sash. So... If a man went to get water out of a well and there was nothing to tie to the bucket, he would borrow his wife's sash. Ridiculous? Yes, but desperately fervent. I remember reading another illustration back when I was in Bible school that another law that was in play, that Pharisees could not spit on the Sabbath. Because if you spit and move the dirt, that would constitute plowing. It just gets ridiculous, doesn't it? And we need to remember that keeping the law for a Pharisee was salvation. That's how they earned their way. But all of this resulted in an unhealthy preoccupation to externals. So that in the end, they became classic hypocrites. Having unchanged hearts, they focused on keeping the law and traditions that merely promoted behavioral modification and religious ceremony. This was the religious background of the one who is approaching Jesus in John chapter 3. The third thing that we learn is his name is Nicodemus. The fourth thing is that Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. That means that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing council of the Jews for all of Judea. Its formation can be traced back to Numbers chapter 11 when Moses was complaining because of all this work he had to do with these Israelites. 
And God gave him permission to recruit um, elders from each of the tribe and assemble them to help him give oversight to these Israelites as they made their way through the wilderness to the land that he had promised would one day be theirs. But in Jesus' day, this council in Jerusalem consisted of 70 Sadducees and Pharisees, a combination, plus the high priest who served as the chairman, so to speak. The Pharisees held the representative minority on this council, but enjoyed, at the same time, a disproportionate influence. The reason was because they were commoners, right? They were popular amongst the people, and so they had that influence. Of course, the ultimate authority rested with the Romans. Much has been made of when Nicodemus had approached Jesus by night. Perhaps it was as meant to be as simple as that Nicodemus wanted a, a private, uninterrupted conversation with this miracle worker from Galilee. But notice how Nicodemus opens the conversation. He provides a, an exceptional expression of respect when he addressed Jesus as rabbi. Especially in light of the fact, look down at verse 10. When Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. Definite article is there in the original language. Which suggests that Nicodemus was not only recognized as a teacher in Israel, but the teacher. So he's the elite teacher in Israel. Certainly, the signs that Jesus performed in Jerusalem had left a a lasting impression on Nicodemus. Look at the end of verse 2. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. However, it also shows some reluctance on Nicodemus's part not to acknowledge Jesus as anything but a teacher. He wasn't prepared to say he was a prophet and certainly not the Messiah. And that sets the stage for this Nicodemus-Jesus conversation. And technically, it's hard to refer to it as a conversation. It seems to me that Jesus really seizes this opportunity to make a teachable moment rather than engaging in a conversation. Notice beyond verse 3, Nicodemus' contribution is limited to three questions. Verse 6, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And verse 9, how can these things be? That's the extent of Nicodemus's contribution. It would appear that that proverbial cat has got the teacher of Israel's tongue. Nicodemus wasn't even given the chance to ask a question before Jesus launches into the first of his three, truly, truly, I say to you. You may want to underline those um, statements. Truly, truly, I say to you in verse 3, again in verse 5, and then again in verse 11. The English Standard Version says, truly, truly, I say to you. The NIV reads, very truly, I tell you. And the New Living Translation 
puts it, I tell you the truth. The emphasis not on the fact that Jesus is about to tell the truth. That's not the emphasis here. Rather, what Jesus was about to say was significant. And he wanted Nicodemus to, to listen up. Write this down. It's going to be on the final examination. You ever have a teacher say that? That's what Jesus is saying here. Nicodemus, I need your undivided attention. Don't miss this. Here is an important truth. You want to pay attention. I've developed my own truly, truly statement for the message this morning. Here it is. An adequate belief involves a rebirth. An inadequate belief is one in which Jesus is not enabled to trust himself to us. The kind of belief that left Jesus standing there saying, I can't entrust myself to these people. But an adequate belief, it involves a rebirth. And I know that there are only three truly, truly I say to you in this passage. But allow me to share with you four important truths embedded in this passage about the rebirth. Four things. And what I'll do is I'll give them to you up front and then we'll work our way through them as time allows. Rebirth is essential. Rebirth is spiritual. Rebirth is avoidable. And rebirth is available as a provision of God. Important truth number one. Rebirth is essential. Notice verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm really not too sure how it can be any clearer than that. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Apart from rebirth, you will not see the kingdom. Apart from rebirth or being born again or literally being born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And remember who Jesus is talking to here. This is a man who was a Pharisee and he sits as a ruler on the Sanhedrin and he is also the teacher of Israel. You know what, Nicodemus? Unless you are born again, You cannot see the kingdom of God. One New Testament scholar offers the following. If Nicodemus, with all of his knowledge, gifts, understanding, position, and integrity, cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along these lines? That's a rhetorical question. There's no hope. If he can't make it, none of us can Even for a Nicodemus, there must be a radical transformation, the generation of new life, comparable with physical birth, end of quote. So apart from rebirth, unless we are born again or born from above, you will not see the kingdom of God. doesn't matter how good or how bad you are, you might think you are. 
who you know or who might know you, who you're related to. All those accomplishments or even failures, they don't matter. Your looks, your age, your ethnicity, the size of your bank account, how many diplomas are hanging on your wall at home, all are irrelevant as far as seeing the kingdom of God is concerned. And this concept about the kingdom of God, it's not lost on Nicodemus. Remember, he's a he's an Old Testament scholar. He knows the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. Scriptures like Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in, in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Or Psalm 145, verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. Nicodemus knew those verses. And so in Nicodemus's mind, a man of the Pharisees, seeing the kingdom of God would mean participating in God's kingdom at the end of the age, experiencing eternal Resurrected life. How is it that we pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth. As it is in heaven. So God's kingdom. Is a place where his plans. And purposes. Are fully realized. And we will never experience that. You and I will never experience that. Unless. We are born again. We experience this kind of rebirth. You see, rebirth is absolutely essential. An adequate belief involves a rebirth. Important truth number two, rebirth is spiritual. Notice verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Okay. Like Nicodemus just isn't getting this. Like trust me, he didn't actually mean that. Like there's, that's ridiculous. Nicodemus wasn't thinking, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? No, what he was saying was, I'm not getting this. This doesn't make sense to me. That's all he was saying. And notice he, it continued. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Before we come down too hard on Nicodemus, let's just be reminded that he's at a distinct disadvantage. He hasn't had time to reflect on, turn back with me to John chapter 1 verse 12. Remember, he's an Old Testament scholar. He hasn't got this, these notes that we have. But as many as received him, to them gave he right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. As far as Nicodemus was concerned, Jesus was talking absolute nonsense. But Jesus comes back with a second of three, truly, truly, I say to you, explanation. For this, I have to admit that there's a variety of interpretations. It's just almost limitless. But let me just begin by pointing out a couple of things. I'm not sure which translation you have in front of you, but take a look at that phrase in verse 5. Mine says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and the Spirit's capitalized. What you need to know is that second, the, is not in the original language, that definite article. It's been inserted. And the Spirit, obviously capitalization is not part of the original Greek language. So what they've done is they've helped us try to understand what they thought the meaning of the passage was. Here's what happens as a result. Um, I've got five possibilities listed here when it comes to this phrase of Scripture. Uh, Let me just read them through quickly. Number one, Jesus is speaking of two births, a water birth and a spiritual birth. It's a possibility. Number two, the water actually refers to the Word of God. So it takes the Word and the Spirit for rebirth to happen. Okay? Number three, the water refers to baptism as an essential part of regeneration. We have a problem with that. Because all it takes, according to Scripture, to be reborn is faith, right? Belief, trust in Jesus Christ alone. So we would have problems with that one. Number four, the water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And number five, water refers to the repentance ministry of John the Baptist, and the Spirit refers to the application by the Holy Spirit of Christ to an individual. So what they're saying is that, and we've talked about John the Baptist in John chapter 1, or, yeah, John chapter 1, and so... They're saying, remember, John's ministry was one of repentance. And so they're saying what's being required here is repentance, and then the Spirit does his work. Well, you know what? I'm going to leave the study of all those interpretations with you. Have fun. There's lots of them, lots of alternatives. Let me just point out one thing, that this, I believe, is a classic example of restatement. Jesus is saying exactly the same thing using different words. Because look at verse 3 and compare them. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Seeing the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God, synonymous. I would say that born of water and born again are synonymous. Both phrases are intended to communicate exactly the same thing. So the primary point that Jesus is making is that entering the kingdom of God will require a reset button, pushing a reset button that will result in some significant changes in a person's life. The point that the changes are so significant that it will look like something like a a physical birth. It's that significant. A fresh start. 
a clean slate. How many have the iPhone with them this morning? iPhones? If you go in your iPhone and you open it up to your windows and you push the, the settings button, and if you go into settings, you can actually reset your phone, right? And there's different things you can do. You can reset the data or you completely erase it and go back to the original condition of the phone. This is a reset button that's taking place at rebirth. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have, bec- have come. New Living Translation, same verse. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and new life has begun. There are a couple of other things that Jesus reveals that we need to point out about rebirth in verses 6 and 8. Verse 6, he makes clear that like begets like. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Apart from the Spirit of God, this rebirth that we're talking about here, to which Jesus is referring, is absolutely impossible. But with God, all things become possible. Don't forget John chapter 1, verse 13. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. There may have been a gentle breeze blowing that night through the dusty streets of Jerusalem because Jesus turns to the wind to make an illustration to explain how this spiritual birth works. You see, this words, and he uses a, a play on words because the word translated wind and spirit is the exact same word in the original language. The only way that they determine what he's talking about is the context when it comes to the use of this word. So Jesus points in this illustration, point in this illustration was to, to highlight man's limited ability to control, manipulate, or even to understand the workings of the spirit. And yet, in both wind and spirit, we definitely see the effects. When the old things pass away and behold, all things become new, we see that. You know it. We can see the change in a person's life. Some things are immediate. Others will take a lifetime. But the transformation is undeniable. But exactly how that happens, that's going to remain a mystery. Because rebirth is spiritual. An adequate belief involves rebirth. Important truth number three, rebirth is avoidable. Notice verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things. Verse 10 is a little bit of a rebuke. Jesus is implying that the teacher of Israel, and you're struggling to get this, 
you're having trouble understanding these things? Verse 11, Jesus chooses to use a plural pronoun. And he may be parroting Nicodemus. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 3. When Nicodemus approaches him, Rabbi, we know that you, we know that you. So maybe Nicodemus was just upping the ante. He wanted, you know, to have a little more courage, so he just said, you know, it's me and a whole bunch of others. Or he may indeed have been actually representing some others on the Sanhedrin Council. Who knows? But he goes on, and he says here, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. There it is. And you do not accept our testimony. That's how you avoid rebirth. You want to limit God's influence in your life? Refuse to believe. Notice verse 12. He affirms it. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? End of discussion. It's a discussion stopper. Later in his first epistle, the Apostle John wrote these words. And this is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And without this belief that leads to eternal life, John 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Without belief, without that adequate, genuine belief, you remain in death. A place called hell will be your destiny. And let me just be clear, it's not a place where we sit around and drink Coors Light with our buddies. The scriptures warn us that those who remain unbelievers will be separated from God for all eternity and will experience eternal torment. In fact, the scriptures indicate that that hell will be like the city dump just outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem where there was a fire that burned day and night, day after day after day, consuming this garbage that was continually added to, and where worms would just continue to eat, never die. It's not a pretty picture. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death and into life. But rebirth, 
is avoidable. Rebirth is spiritual, and rebirth is essential. An adequate belief involves a rebirth. Important truth number four, rebirth is available as a provision of God. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It's no surprise that Jesus, sitting there with Nicodemus, would take an Old Testament story and say, Nicodemus, this is what it's like. Remember Numbers chapter 21, where the nation of Israel had rebelled against God. They were disobedient, and God sent serpents in amongst the nation of Israel. In fact, they're called fiery serpents, and some have suggested when the snakes would would bite the Israelites, they would develop such a fever, they felt like they were on fire, and people were dying. And so they asked Moses to plead for them on, on their behalf. And Moses did, and God said, make us an image of that snake out of bronze and put it on a stake, and whoever looks to the stake, looks to the the serpent, the bronze serpent, will be healed. That's the picture that Jesus is leaving with Nicodemus. Now again, Nicodemus is on the other side of the cross. We're on this side. Tremendous advantage. And I think if Jesus were amongst us today, he would say, forget the serpent. Look at the table. Look at the symbols on the table. The bread. Symbolizing my body. The fact that God became man. The incarnation took on human flesh and lived among us. The the cup represents the blood that he shed at Calvary. Like that snake that was put on the pole, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was nailed to a wooden cross and shed his blood so that we could experience God's forgiveness. That's the picture that we need to have in our minds. Nicodemus would have been very familiar with this story of the bronze snake. But I would like to suggest that in approximately two and a half years, that bronze snake on a pole became, there was just a whole new meaning to what that meant for Nicodemus. For you and me, we've been given the opportunity to participate this morning in one of the best illustrations of what Jesus was communicating to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, puts it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not the result of works. Not the result of anything you and I can do, so that none of us can boast. This is a work of God. Rebirth is available as a provision of God. An adequate belief, the kind of belief which allows Jesus to entrust himself to us, involves a rebirth. An adequate belief 
involves a rebirth. Rebirth is essential. Every one of us need to be born again, born from above. And so we need to examine ourselves. Think about it. Make sure that we've entrusted our lives to Jesus Christ alone. And it involves a spiritual rebirth that only God can accomplish. We can't work this out ourselves or work it out for the people we love. We need to be prepared to share the gospel every opportunity that we're given and even maybe create some opportunities because we know where they're destined if they don't make this kind of decision. To avoid rebirth leaves us alienated from God and destined for a place of eternal punishment, hell. But know this, salvation is available, not by looking to a bronze snake, but by receiving him, by believing in his name and becoming a child of God. And here's the teaser for next week's message. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Father, in the words of the hymn, To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. invite you to stand and praise God from whom all blessings Be seated for just one moment. 
Again, let me wish all of you happy Thanksgiving weekend. And um, just before we close, a couple of announcements. Cynthia and I do want to extend our invitation again to our huddles in our home. We want 